Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, and welcome back, I guess, for regular listeners. I've had a little bit of a hiatus for new episodes, because I've just um, basically turned my whole life upside down, and after 10 years in the US, I moved with my wife back to the UK. So that's been the last month of my life, is packing up all of our stuff, it's very sad to say goodbye to our New York apartment, but it had to happen. Doing the flight, the journey, quarantining, getting COVID tests, um, all that whole drama. So anyway, I'm established here in the UK now, and I'm aiming to get the podcast up and start it again. There's probably not going to be an absolute locked-in schedule for the next few weeks, but I've got some good guests lined up. I've got ideas for solo episodes. I'm going to get started again with a solo episode. This is one I've been meaning to do for a little while now, which is a follow-up to my episode on humiliation. I'm not going to give it too much of an introduction. I think it's a fairly simple thesis I'm trying to communicate, and I think it more or less speaks for itself. So I'm just going to get straight into that. As always, if you want to support the podcast... um, We do have a Patreon page, so what I've been saying is this podcast is free. Anyone can listen to it, and it's advertisement-free. We don't interrupt the content to, like, try and sell you underwear or men's baldness products or whatever it is they try and sell on podcasts. Again, I just say to listeners, hey, if you enjoy the show, consider sponsoring it, and This actually works quite well with the break I've been taking, because the way I've set up the Patreon is per episode rather than per month. So if there's a period where I don't put out content, i.e. the last month, which is I think pretty much the first time I've broken my schedule in the years I've been doing this, um, if there's a period where I don't put out content, then you don't get charged at all, you only pay for what I make. I've been suggesting $2 an episode, but it's really up to you. You can pick absolutely any amount. So if the episode you're about to listen to is as invigorating and stimulating, or as bitter and unpalatable as a cup of coffee, consider sponsoring it on that basis, or whatever you think it's worth. And any and all donations are massively appreciated. You're making it possible for me to continue doing this show which I love doing. So, as always, big thank you to our Patreons. If you're not able to make a financial contribution but still want to support the show, sharing it on social media and recommending it to friends are also great ways to do that. And thank you to everyone who does that as well. Okay, so let's get started. I've I've missed doing this. It's, um, I've not been able to recently, um, and I've missed it. It feels feels good to be back. So, with all that said, let's get into it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you this week's solo episode, Humiliation and Freedom. some of the most important moments in our lives, precisely because they're some of the worst moments of our lives, at least when we're the victim of it. So I think it's interesting and unfortunate that humiliation is very under-theorised in political theory. There's not a lot on it. And I've been trying for some time now to sort of remedy that, and for two reasons, and I'm going to try and flesh both out in this episode. One is I just think thinking about this is it's an interesting and important and consequential object of inquiry in its own light. The other is that I think thinking about it leads us to some interesting normative conclusions. 
I think thinking about humiliation leads us to have a clearer view of what a good society should look like. It leads us to a clearer view of what our political morality should be, that is to say. I think concretely, this is my thesis statement. I often begin these solo episodes with like a question, a hook to draw the audience in. Um, I'm beginning this one the boring way. You know, has anyone, I, I assume a lot of students listen to this, has anyone, you know, you know, you start the essay, in this essay I will dot dot dot, I will show that Hobbes meant this by contract, blah blah blah, right? So, so I'm, I'm starting it the boring way, I'm, th- I'm starting it with a thesis statement that I'm then going to evidence. This, this is my thesis statement. By the way, I can just imagine someone who this is the first of these podcasts has ever listened to is like at this point just like, what the fuck did I just tune into? What the... I am getting out of here. St- you know, uh, stick around. It. I was going to say it gets better. I'm not sure that's true. It, it, it gets explained. How's that? You know what? Stick around. See if you like it or not. But this is my th- thesis statement. Humiliation is a particular thing. It can be defined reasonably tightly and concisely, and by so doing, we can use that definition, or the insights generated from that definition, to come up with a number of, I think, quite persuasive arguments for the value of freedom, or the value of a particular kind of freedom, a particular conception of freedom. And more than that, thinking and getting our definition of humiliation straight can sort of change how we see the application and nature of that type of freedom. So, concretely, this is my thesis statement. In this essay, I will provide an original definition of humiliation, use that definition to generate arguments for a specific conception of freedom, sometimes called a republican conception of freedom, or freedom as non-domination, or something like that, and argue that thinking about freedom through the lens of humiliation changes how we see the nature and the scope of freedom. So this has been a long time coming, and I think what I want to try and do in this episode is give you my account kind of like with the scaffolding off. So in the first episode I did, centred on humiliation, I very much gave you my methodological framework. I went into great detail on the sort of theoretical assumptions that are like underpinning this account. And almost as if I was building like a statue or something with all the scaffolding around it. And I was like showing you where all the scaffolding was and how this thing had been put together. And I think in this one, I'm just going to be like, so this is the statue. Like This is basically what I was trying to say with this. And if, like, I seem to skip over some steps in this, or you're sort of wondering, well, wait, what are the assumptions that you're making in order to say this? Go back to the first humiliation episode, and I think you'll see I actually do put quite a lot of thought into that scaffolding. But for this one, I'm just sort of going to give you the end result. This is like if I got asked to go and, you know, give a talk on a college campus on humiliation, and I had like 45 minutes or so, and I didn't have time to waffle on about essential contestability for half an hour just to sort of roll out the epistemic carpet, I think this is pretty much what I'd say. So let's get started with humiliation, um, which I want to say, you know, I don't want to like glorify it, I think this is a necessarily nasty and ugly thing. Um, I think I've been able to clean up my definition a bit. In my first one, I did sort of a long, quite a long definition, quite a technical one, and I think I can crunch that down a bit. Here goes. Humiliation is the forced recognition of domination. Quite clean, quite tight. Humiliation is the forced recognition of domination. So let's just think about a few examples. Um, Julius Caesar in the Gallic War, when he defeats... Vercingetorix, the the Gallic chieftain, who's rallied all the tribes of Gaul together, put up this great last stand against the Roman legions, really caused Caesar a lot of headaches in his, I guess what we would now call genocide of that region, and he's finally forced to surrender to Caesar. 
um, and if we believe our sources, um, Caesar makes him throw his weapons at Caesar's feet. He's stripped naked, and he has to kiss the eagle, which is like the, the standard, the battle standard of the Roman legions. Now, um, you know, I'm not an expert on, like, all of the different symbolisms and rituals and, and whatever, but, you know, when it comes to accepting the defeat of an enemy, there's ways you can do it that leave the enemy with their honour and those that strip the enemy of their honour. And my suspicion is Caesar intended to do the latter with that. What he's showing is, you are in my power. And he's making it obvious and undeniable to everyone. I think the sword thrown at the feet, that was like... I mean, I don't know, in Roman times, but at least in like the 18th, 19th century, like giving the opposing commander your sword, that was a way of showing defeat while retaining honour. You're both gentlemanly here, gentlemanly warfare, that sort of thing, right? Um, I think the sort of kissing the eagle, like kissing the ring, something like that, I think that was intended to, to humiliate him. Um, it's intended to show, you are now totally in my power. And he, he, he was. Um, Vercingetorix, after this, was imprisoned for a few years, and then um, was eventually strangled on Caesar's orders, so he absolutely was in his power. But there's a way Caesar could have done that, that allowed him to sort of retain his dignity, and Caesar chose not to. So so that, to my mind, is an instance of humiliation. It is the forced recognition of domination. Caesar in, is in a position of domination with respect to Vercingetorix. I mean, prior to that, Vercingetorix might have been in a position of domination with respect to, say, the Gaulish allies. But in that moment, Caesar can do basically whatever he wants to Vercingetorix, so domination, and he's showing it. Now, I chose that example because these are people, political elites, I guess we might say, at the top of society. Um, but domination doesn't require that people are powerless in absolute terms, it requires that they're powerless relative to someone else. Um, let, let's think about the bottom of society. Um, say, you know, someone was desperate, so poor, so desperate for resources, um, that they, they would starve or be kicked out of their home unless you gave them money. Um, and you could give them money, you could give them money in return for them providing some sort of good or service that they were happy to do so. But then say you made that money conditional on them doing something degrading or humiliating. I um, gave the example in um, my last one of these about like making a homeless person dance in order to get the money. Well, again, what's sort of going on there? It's the forced recognition of domination. And again, domination can make any, take any form, but where I have economic resources and the other person needs them to avoid starving, right? That is, in a sense, domination. I have a, I have a real power over their lives that is arbitrary and unaccountable. You know, as the ancients would say, it is tyrannical. It is, it, 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 you know, I am not a tyrant in the political sense, but that power is a tyrannical power, right? Um, so that's an example from the bottom of society. And you can also just have much more mundane ones, like, like think about just like playground bullying, when a group of kids sort of gets around another kid and like isolates them and leaves them with no option to like escape and just ridicules them and, and makes them put up with like taunting and insults that they would never otherwise put up with. Again, what's happening? They're being forced to recognise their powerlessness, right? They're being forced to recognise that they are, in a certain sense, in a position of domination. There's nothing you can do. You don't have friends you can appeal to. Let's just say, like, going to the teachers or whatever wouldn't be effective because we'll retaliate and everyone will call you a snitch or whatever. You can't stop this. This is going to happen to you. And we're going to make it obvious and undeniable that this is going to happen to you, and obvious and undeniable that you can't do anything about it. That's the core of humiliation for me. And it's so psychologically damaging because it's destructive of the status claims 
that human beings want, and I would argue need, to make for themselves in order for them to sort of have the minimum conditions that they need to pursue their interests. I'll get back to that last part. Um, and because it destroys their status claims, it, it, it's very psychologically damaging. Psychologically damaging because it isolates us, it cuts us off from other people, and because it makes people angry and silenced and despondent. But let's just go through and just do... I, I did three big words in my definition. It's the forced recognition of domination. Let's just start with forced. For me, I think it's really important to point out that humiliation is necessarily non-consensual. Um, if in any of those examples, you know, people had happened to want to do the thing, then it wouldn't be humiliating. So let's just say, you know, the example of being forced to dance to get the money you need. Well, let's say the person wasn't as financially desperate. They were still poor, say, but it wasn't like life or death for them. And they chose to make money doing street performances dancing. Wouldn't, wouldn't be a problem. Uh, not really, right? Um, say Vercingetorix just really gets off on kissing eagles. <laughs> right? Like, again, it, you know, if someone comes up to Caesar, it's like, oh, dude, can I kiss that eagle? Like, you might be like, well, he's a weirdo. But there doesn't seem anything obviously morally wrong there. And you can really fine-grain this. And I think um, there's no way of bringing this example up without it being a bit cringe, but, like, I think the, the clearest example of, like, like, how big a difference this makes and how it just rules it from one category to another, whether or not it's forced, whether or not it's consensual, would be sexual fetishes, right? There's a lot of things people... Um, sort of routines, role plays people do um, as part of sex that look a lot like humiliation, but if they have, you know, enthusiastic consent of both parties, I don't think are necessarily morally problematic at all. Um, so, for instance, um, I've um, had a few uh, female friends who used to do sex work, and apparently the sort of stereotype of the 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 businessman who's all respectable by day but likes to have a sort of uh, dominatrix, like tell him he's worthless and sort of you know, beg for her approval by evening. Apparently that is not a stereotype or a caricature. There are, you know, real people who meet that. And more power to them. Like that, you know, again, as long as there's enthusiastic consent on all sides, that doesn't seem morally problematic to me in any way. Um, the, the only time it might be is is uh, if you reverse the gender roles and say um, uh, men degrading women, even consensually. Some feminists might say, well, you know, hang on. Even if this is something that's a genuine fantasy for both people, is there something maybe problematic? Is that maybe somewhat caused by the overall gender roles that society forces on us? Um, I think that's a fair question, um, but I think even the feminists who push that line the hardest um, would absolutely say that, that, that even if we might find it somewhat problematic, there's a huge difference between those behaviours with consent and without consent. I mean, <laughs> I mean, in the case of sex, the difference is between something we might find problematic and a serious crime, right? So... I think that shows us, like, you can't really fake humiliation. Like, it, it is necessarily something you don't want to have happen to you. And, like, I think there's some circumstances. And again, I think certain, like, sexual fetishes are probably the clearest instance where we quite like... It's sort of like escapism, I guess. People like to role-play humiliation. But role-playing humiliation isn't the same thing as actually being humiliated, in the same way as, you know, we like to sort of role-play violence in a way that isn't really the same as actual violence, or like an actor portraying love is not the same as love, right? Um, so I think 
humiliation is necessarily something forced. I think a key defining feature of humiliation is that if we had a choice, we wouldn't be putting up with this. And that brings me to the next element, which is domination. And what I mean by this is humiliation necessarily involves power. Humiliation can only in occur in the presence of power imbalances. I would say necessarily undesirable power imbalances, but I'll get back to that. Normative. Assessment. Here I don't feel like I need to do as much work. Domination has a fairly well-defined um, account of it in the political theory literature, particularly in the Republican tradition, and in a broad sense. That's how I'm using it here. Um, domination is when someone has just arbitrary and unaccountable and unchallengeable power over you. They have the ability to do things to you non-consensually without retaliation. That might be to make you do something, or say something, or not do something. So in the case of being bullied on the schoolyard, to not speak up, to not stand up for yourself, to not punch the bully on the nose because he's got ten friends and you've got none, you know. Um, and the only thing I want to point out here is I don't think domination is a binary. I think there's sort of a variety of different ways that we can have domination over another person. You know, I'm increasingly liking the phrase tyrannical power. It's very old-timey, but I think it actually captures it a little bit more nicely than the somewhat verbose, arbitrary and unaccountable. There is something tyrannical about someone not having enough money, that you can, at a whim, decide whether they eat or not. There is something tyrannical about having the sort of friendship group and social standing, or the lack of a friendship group, or the lack of social standing on the part of your victim, that you can call them whatever name you want and they have to take it. There's something tyrannical there. And in the case of Caesar, of course, I mean... He is literally a tyrant, right? Six Semper Tyrannus. That's, that's where we get all that stuff from. So, that, I think, is a necessary element. And what humiliation is, 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 is forcing us to recognise that we are in that position, even though we might have sort of been pretending that we're not. That's what humiliation is. And I think it's that power element that really separates humiliation from other things. So one sort of line of critique to my account could go, well, what about this? That seems to fall outside of your definition. There's plenty of times we might say someone is humiliated where there wasn't obviously a power imbalance. I might, you know, walk into a, a, a lamppost and feel humiliated, um, or... Um, one of my friends who is, let's just say, um, a complete equal to me in every relevant respect with at least regards to power, um, says something unkind or unflattering that hurts my feelings, would I not then be humiliated? And, yeah, conversationally we might use it in different ways. I'm trying to highlight one specific phenomenon here. And it's quite a limited concept. You know, for a lot of us, it might only be a couple of instances in our lives that were genuinely humiliated. For the very fortunate, or perhaps the very privileged, they might never be humiliated in their lives. But then there will be a lot of other people for whom this, this thing, which, which I think is incredibly psychologically harmful to people, is actually just a regular occurrence in their lives. Um... And I'd sort of actually say the, the other examples I gave aren't really humiliation. Or I mean, you can define terms. Like, maybe what I'm talking about is a specific type of humiliation. But what I'd say is people are talking about other things. And principally, I think they're talking about shame and they're talking about embarrassment. Um, so, to my mind, shame is different. Shame is enforcing a social norm or attempting to enforce a social norm. It's one of the mechanisms we have to get people to conform to sort of like the underlying written or unwritten rules of society. Now, honestly, you know, that can be 
as good or as bad as the norm we're trying to enforce is. So I gave this example in my conversation with Heather Widows on beauty, but with regards to beauty standards, which we might think are sort of sexist or harmful to women, or harmful to women and men, actually, you know, if I say to a woman, oh, you look you look pretty tired, do you not think you should put on a little bit of makeup before you go out, look a bit more presentable? I'm shaming her, right? Which is to say I'm using a sort of emotional and conversational pressure to try and bring her into conformity with the particular social standard we have, namely sort of a sort of set of aesthetic expectations that we have. And we might say that that's bad, but it, it, it's not really the shame that's bad, it's the norm that I'm trying to bring her into conformity with. Say conversely, though, she was to say to me, Toby, you lied when you could have told the truth. That's really disappointing. Well, in that case, she's shaming me into truth-telling. She's using, again, a sort of emotional, psychological, conversational pressure to try and sort of get me to conform to a sort of social norm that we have. Um, namely that truth-telling is a good thing. And in that case, it might be quite good that I'm being shamed into to being told, made to tell the truth. Right? And coincidentally, this is a bit of a tangent here, but people often act as if shaming is necessarily a bad thing. Now, shame, as opposed to humiliation, actually has a certain amount on it in the, the philosophy, um, psychology, political theory, literature, so I'm not going to go into it too much. But to my mind, shame is a tactic that we have to bring people into conformity with a norm. Now, it's not just, like trying to get someone to do something. There has to be a norm. You can't shame someone for something that isn't a norm. You can't shame me into um, not wearing rainbow stripes on a Wednesday, because that's not a norm. I'm just like, well, why, why would I do that? I might not be aware of the norm. Say I walk into a mosque eating a bacon sandwich, and you're like, oh, dude, no, you don't do that here. Being made aware of that norm might make me feel ga bad or guilty about it, like, you know, I'm not a Muslim, but I don't want to disrespect people or, like, hurt people's feelings or cause offence, so being made aware of the norm might make me go, oh, shoot, totally my bad, should not have done that, right? Um, but there has to be a norm, and it's really as good or bad as the norm is. And then, of course, there's embarrassment. Now, embarrassment, uh, I haven't really tried to theorise this one, but what is that? It's just sort of like heightened self-awareness, something like that. So, like, me walking into the lamppost might be embarrassing. I don't think it's humiliating. I don't think it's the same thing. Um, I'll put it this way. Embarrassment can occur in the absence of a, a power differential. Humiliation requires a power differential. And I think here's sort of like a smell test for which one you're dealing with. If it's something you could conceivably laugh about later, it's embarrassment, not humiliation. You know, I can tell the story about me walking into the lamppost, and I'm, I'm the butt of the joke, but I can still I can still sort of be in on the joke. You know what I mean? I could go, oh, yeah, they should have seen when I did this, man. You know? Um, and you can sort of run that down the line. You can have a, a, a situation where you're joking. What, what do people say? Where you're joshing. Where you're joshing with... I don't even know if that's Brit, British or American slang. I'm so confused with that. Where you're joshing with your friends and you're all sort of ribbing each other and, like... Yeah, you're having a good time. You laugh at you laugh about it later. Oh, you remember when... You remember when Aaron called Dave a cocksucker? Like, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's a vaguely homophobic one, but whatever. You know what I mean? Like, guys do that to each other, right? And you could laugh about that later. Well, you're really being bullied. You wouldn't laugh at it later, or at least you wouldn't if you had a choice. The bully might force you to laugh at it later. That would be another act of humiliation, right? But that's sort of like the smell test, I think. Um, so, so one example that got given to me as a counterexample is what about when someone throws a milkshake at Nigel Farage? Isn't that humiliation? And in that case, he's the more powerful party. I think, no, that's embarrassment. People love to embarrass politicians, <laughs> you know? Um, and again, I think... Well, I don't think Nigel Farage would, because I think he has a sort of noxious self-importance that would prevent him from doing this, but I think a psychological, psychologically 
normal and healthy person would be able to laugh about that afterwards. Oh, yeah, man, you won't believe a few years later, man, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you on a campaign? Oh, mate, one time I got milkshake poured all over me. I was drenched. <laughs> Absolutely sucked, let me tell you. I had yeah, to walk all the way home in it. Ah, man. Yeah, oh, man, you should have heard this, this one time, this, yeah, so on and so forth. You can imagine a, a psychologically healthy person being able to laugh about that. I don't think Farage would ever. Maybe I'm wrong. So that separates out humiliation from shame or embarrassment. And shame and embarrassment are much more common, much more common. We will all invoke shame on a fairly regular basis and have it invoked against us. We'll all be embarrassed from time to time. In fact, I think being embarrassed is quite healthy, actually, from time to time. I think it's good for us, actually, to take a minute and think, yeah, I probably look pretty stupid there. I think that's healthy, right? And we'll see other people embarrassed. Humiliation's really rare. It might only happen to you a handful of times in your life. If you're lucky, it might not happen to you ever. But for some people, it's constant. Now... That brings you to this word I've used of recognition. I've also used the word highlight to make something obvious and uh, to make it undeniable. The forced recognition of domination. Well, this is how this connects up. And particularly I want to make explicit, I said... I offered a similar definition of humiliation to this in my last one, and I said the effect of humiliation is that it's destructive of the status claims that we make for ourselves, and I want to sort of try and outline like the connective tissue between those two sides of it. So, basically human beings make status claims for ourselves all of the time. We, we might do them overtly, we might like say, oh, you know, I'm the boss around here, or something like that. We might make them sort of quite subtly, we might show off, or brag. Just, also just in the way we speak to people, our tone of voice, our body language, all communicate, either consciously or subconsciously, certain things about ourselves. We're worthy of respect. Maybe that we're dangerous, don't come near me. Maybe that we're someone who wants to have some sort of either social or physical aura of intimidation around them. We make all sorts of status claims for ourselves. Now, humiliation isn't the undermining of every sort of status claim. For instance, I might claim that I'm the king of a country you've never heard of, and that claim could be undermined by someone <laughs> demonstrably showing that it was false and I'd look like an idiot and I'd probably deserve to look like an idiot. I'd say, in that case, I've been embarrassed. I haven't been humiliated. Humiliation is showing us up when we make status claims to the effect that we are not dominated and someone shows in a way that even we can't deny that actually we are dominated. And what I think this shows is that people naturally want to make status claims, in fact need to. I think I'm, I'm going to argue it's this is actually an absolutely fundamental, ineliminatable condition of what people need to realise their full personhood. People need to make status claims in a certain minimum area. There's a certain set of like core competencies that we feel the need to project around ourselves. We want to, to claim for ourselves a certain amount of autonomy, again, at least within a set of core functions. We want to claim for ourselves a certain sort of equality with others. Not absolute equality, but that we are sort of, if not in every sense practical, we are sort of moral equals. We are equally worthy of the sort of respect and time and consideration that those around us are. I think we also want to project that we're in control. We can leave a situation anytime we want. So, for instance, you know, I think Vercingetorix would want to signal that he can walk away and not kiss Caesar's eagle anytime he wants. 
the homeless person doesn't have to take your money. The, the, the kid on the school yard doesn't have to put up with this. Except in all of those cases, they do. And that's what humiliation does, is it destroys that status claim. And I was thinking, what is this, like, core set? Because there's all sorts of status claims that people make. And I was thinking, what is this core set that has something to do with autonomy, power, rough equality with others? What is this sort of core set of status claims that human beings sort of seem to need to make that humiliation undermines? And it became really obvious. We seek to make status claims that we are not in positions of domination. We seek to portray ourselves through our overt statements, through what's implicit in our statements, through our tone and body language, how we interact with others. We seek to portray ourselves as people who are not dominated, because the state of being dominated is almost unbearable for people. We hate it. And so we, 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 even when we are in positions of domination, we sort of go around acting like we're not, right? We portray ourselves as people who are, you know, at least in some sense, equal and worthy of consideration, even if there are people around us who are under no obligation to treat us that way. So think about the kid in the schoolyard. You know, even if you are, in a position where you're an easy target for bullying. You don't go around all the time acting like that. You don't walk up to people and go, oh, you know, hi, I know you can, like, crush me at any time, but I'd really... No, you sort of go, oh, hi, mate, how's it going? You know? Likewise, if you're an employee in an employment at will scenario where you can be let go at any time, you know, you're aware of it at some level, but you don't go around acting as if you're subject to that sort of, let's just, I like this old word, tyrannical power. You don't go around acting like that. What humiliation does is it cuts through that and it shows that, no, you know, you really are subject to tyrannical power. So a boss could fire you. That could be, depending on how it's done, that could be a humiliating act. Or they could just make you do something you wouldn't have done otherwise, Right? Imagine someone forcing you to bark like a dog, because they have, you know, either employment or social or some sort of power over you. That's humiliation, right? It's showing you that they can make you do this stuff. It often has no other purpose other than to demonstrate that, and that's what I mean by recognition. Human beings... I think naturally, naturally is a bit of a dangerous word, but we, we, we so detest being in positions of domination, we so need to be perceived by others as at least a rough equal, as not someone who's been made abject in this way, that we make these sorts of status claims for ourselves. In a similar, in a weird way, there's a very obvious parallel between humiliation and the Marxist idea of demystification. Demystification is, in Marxism, there's the underlying economic power structure, right? And then we develop all of these sort of false consciousness, uh, ideologies around it that sort of obfuscate it and, like, make it seem something like it's other than, than, than what it is. Um, so in capitalism, we're increasingly interdependent, but capitalism tells us we're all individuals, right? That, that, and, and, and demystification is what it sounds like. It's when you see through the power structure, you see through the ideological smokescreen to the underlying power structure. The difference is, and what makes humiliation so fascinating, is that it's not as in sort of Marxist or socialist theory, a sort of knowledge of how the world really works that the people, the, the powerless people, gain when they see through the lies that the powerful people have been telling them to keep them in line, right? That's sort of the, the Marxist story. Humiliation is the powerless people trying to pretend both to other people, but also to themselves, trying to pretend to themselves that it's not as bad as all of that, that they're not at the mercy of others, that they are 
worthy of respect and consideration, that they can exercise some autonomy in their life. They're not just at the, the, the end of the capricious whims of the people in power, and the people in power going, no, actually you are. That's what makes it so interesting. There's a very obvious parallel with the Marxist story, but then the direction in which it operates is just a complete inversion. And it actually rationally doesn't make a lot of sense, because humiliation has a few effects on the, the humiliated. It, it, it breaks ties, it cuts people off, I think it, it stops people being perceived as people, so it isolates them. And it also, it, it's very psychologically damaging to people. And for that reason, it makes people furious, right? You'd think if you were in power, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't want to do that to people. You'd want to maintain the sort of smokescreen. You'd want to maintain the sort of false consciousness, as a Marxist would have it. But powerful people routinely go out of their way to point out their own power and point out the powerlessness of those under them in a way that often really works against their interests. Now, I want to be really clear here. The fact that humiliation can lead to a backlash that works against the powerful the fact that it can lead to a sort of realisation of the the sort of actually what's happening with power does not make it a good thing. There's no silver lining to this, really, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, it is true that humiliation can act as the instigating incident that leads to change with respect to unjust structures of power, but it would be better if that power simply did not exist at all by analogy with you know something we're talking about at the moment a particular act of police violence may be the instigating incident in protests that lead to good outcomes but i don't think anyone would say the act of violence was itself a good thing that people have a visceral reaction to injustice does not make the injustice justice right so, let's recap what we've covered thus far. Acts of humiliation are when a powerful person forces a dominated person to recognise the state of their domination. This is destructive of status claims because amongst the many sorts of status claims people make, some of which are very grandiose, some of which are much more mundane, but almost every person, except for the truly just psychologically broken, almost every person will try to portray themselves, will make status claims for themselves, as someone who is not being dominated. Now, at some level, they sort of know that they're false, and at some level, people around them will know that, but it is sort of a fiction that we tell ourselves, that we tell the people around us, and that, that we do the same for them. It's sort of a, it's a social thing that we all participate in. And humiliation cuts through that. It forces someone to be aware that they are much more at the mercy of people in power than they were projecting to others and even that they were projecting to themselves. The effects of that are many, but I would identify two, which is isolation, and anger. It cuts us off from other people, and it makes us bitter and resentful. And, and instances of humiliation can stay with us. You know, I can still remember, quite viscerally, um, instances of um, getting bullied in middle school. And just just think back, like, what, what has this evoked for you? Has, has so something like this ever happened where you, you were just made to feel utterly powerless? It sticks with you, doesn't it? Stays with you for it changes people. Not clearly for the better, either. I think dominating power changes people on both sides of the equation. It, it, it's psychologically harmful to people on both sides of the equation. I think that's something we've known for a long time, although our current age is often at pains to ignore. 
So what does all that mean then? I've said I think it's something interesting in theorising, and at some point in my life I am going to write a book on humiliation. But that's sort of my full account of what it is. So I'll try and be brief with this last bit then. But one, I just think it's interesting to try and understand it. Because to understand it, we have to think in terms of, like, honour and degradation that are so outside of our usual ways of, like, rational self-interest explaining the world. So I think it's interesting for its own sake. I also think a number of normative conclusions fall out of it. Principally, I think the analysis I've just done so far, or the definitions I've just laid out, set up a number of quite powerful arguments for a particular conception of liberty, of freedom, namely of, of the, the moral importance of realising what theorists of it often call freedom as non-domination. What that means is, to be free, it is not merely enough that we don't have anyone constraining us or getting in our way, there must be no one who has arbitrary or unaccountable or tyrannical, shall we say, power over us. There can be no one with the, the, the capacity to interfere with us, at least, you know, interfere with us arbitrarily, right? That's associated with thinkers like Quentin Skinner, Philip Pettit, and so on and so forth. One thing I'd just like to quickly separate out, and I realised I got this distinction down um, recently, is um, the difference between the process of becoming liberated and the condition of liberty as non-domination. So I've talked about how freedom can be found in the act of coming together in protest. So if we think about the protests about... Um, race that we're seeing in America right now, um, or uh, the Stonewall riots that launched the gay rights movement, stuff like that, right? Humiliation has a role in that story, in that yes, there are particular sparks, a particular act of police violence, or um, the, the instigating incidents, um, also to do with police, I think, that launched the Stonewall riots. Um, but those are sparks that sort of ignite a long-run pressure that's been building up because of repeated acts of, um, amongst other things, repeated acts of humiliation. People, because of their marginalised status as either, in this case, gay or black people, being made to feel their powerlessness. And there is a sort of, in coming together to fight back against it, a sort of collective reclaiming of humanity. It speaks to readdressing the isolation that humiliation causes, um, empowering those people, and, and giving voice to their righteous anger, right? Now, I've been calling that freedom. I think it's probably better to say it is the, the, it is the process of becoming free. Is, an, is something that can be a very good feeling, it can be a valuable good, like that process of coming together to sort of fight for your rights and find trust and solidarity with others, um, can be, to, 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 to sort of use a slightly cliched but appropriate word, can be liberating. Be being The process of being liberated is liberating, right? So the, the, the mechanisms by which people achieve this type of freedom, or rebel or push back against this type of unfreedom, namely um, being dominated, are themselves liberating. They feel good. It's a particular valuable um, good that is available to us in societies that have domination, right? Um, so there's, I, I do want to separate out the sort of process of achieving freedom and the condition of freedom itself. The condition of freedom itself is non-domination, right? And I think thinking about humiliation grounds a really powerful set of arguments for freedom as non-domination. Final note before I get into the arguments is, is um, I want to be clear what these arguments are not doing, and I think this will just make the overall thrust of what I'm trying to do here sharper, and it'll close down some potential counter-arguments. For one thing, I am not saying that my arguments show that freedom as non-domination is the only form of freedom, 
or even necessarily the most valuable form of freedom, just that it is a particular form of freedom that is a moral good that is important, and all other things being equal, it's better to have it than to not have it. So, for instance, I remain agnostic in this episode, um, if, say, something like a freedom as autonomy model like John Stuart Mill has, you know, like, I'm not foreclosing that, right? I'm just saying, whatever we think freedom involves, at a minimum it involves this. It might involve other stuff as well. The other thing I'm not saying my argument does is, is many Republican theorists, such as Skinner and Pettit, will want to say freedom as non-domination is really the only political good that you need to worry about. I'm not saying that. There might be other political goods, like some conception of justice, or um, other forms of equality, or what have you. Um, there might be all sorts of other political goods. I'm merely saying that my arguments established that this is a political good, and an important one, that, that we should um, be interested in pursuing. So, I've got two simple arguments, and one slightly more complex one. And the simple arguments really, honestly, just proceed from the definition. Um, so the first one is consequentialist, the second is uh, deontological, and I think they both just fall straight out of it. So the first one is, having a society in which there are relations of domination is, all other things being equal, bad, because people will tend to use those relations of domination to humiliate people. Humiliation is very, very damaging, very painful for the humiliated, and only produces like a sort of very fleeting temporary high for the humiliator. Therefore, from a utilitarian perspective, Acts of humiliation are almost always a net loss for utility. Acts of humiliation are only possible where relations of domination exist. Therefore, all other things being equal, we would prefer relations of domination not to exist, because that simply means that these acts which are very painful and are very down to use utilitarian language, are a net utility loss, um, that just it means they can't exist anymore. Now, you might say, well, could you get the same result if you had relations of domination, um, but they were never used to humiliate? Well, there are other independent reasons to find relations of domination undesirable, but let, let's just put that to one side for a minute. Uh, I think the answer to that is something like this. Yes, that, all, that would be utility neutral, but it just does seem to be the case that people in power routinely use that power to humiliate people under them, and what is more, there's no safety mechanism. There's no way in which you could have relations of domination but simultaneously ensure that they weren't used to humiliate, right? Because if you started putting safeguards in that constrained what the powerful person could do, made their power accountable and answerable to someone else so that they weren't humiliating people, then it would no longer be a power of domination, right? So, in attempting to set up a stable system in which you had domination but not humiliation, the, the process of setting up that stable system would require you to remove the domination, right? So domination basically invariably will lead to humiliation. Humiliation pretty much invariably will be a big net utility loss. Ergo, as a sort of rule consequentialist, we should say, all other things being equal, a utilitarian should not want relations of domination to exist. Now, that, I am not claiming that is a philosophically sophisticated argument. It's a very simple argument. I, I, I think it holds water. <laughs> um, and now it's important to get in a sort of all other things being equal clause at every single, you know, point, you know, 
I'm not saying you could justify the Russian Revolution or something with this, but I think it speaks to the moral value of having a society that aims for non-domination. Or to put it in another way, it, um, it speaks to the moral good of freedom, as a Republican would see it, and as, as many other people throughout history have seen it. I think it is quite simple nuts and bolts, you know, sort of Peter Singer utilitarian argument for the moral value of freedom in society. It falls directly out of this definition of humiliation. Let's do the Kantian one, the Deantic one. Um, what's another reason humiliation's wrong? Well, it treats people as um, means and not as ends. Now, this thinking really doesn't hold any sway for me. I'm sure there's a way of doing the means-ends distinction that will make sense for me, but I haven't found it yet. But, what is, what is more wrong than that? Surely, and then it would follow, right? We want to not have that happen, right? We don't want people being used as... um means and not as ends. After all, what is using someone more instrumentally than to gratify ourselves by forcing them to recognise their own powerlessness? Pure, completely non-consensually. This is, this is, this is, de you know, if anything is treating someone as a means and not an end, it's humiliation, right? And then all you have to grant me is that in cases that are very damaging, there should be certain safeguards in place to stop people behaving in this immoral, from the Kantian perspective, way, right? We shouldn't be, be doing this, and if people shouldn't be doing this, and it's a severe enough sort of moral thing that they oughtn't not to be, they should be prevented not, then we should design our society such that there are restrictions, such that we those restrictions eventually sort of eventually remove powers of domination, which is to say, from a Kantian perspective, there is a moral imperative to create societies that are free. Domination is just the other is just the other side of the coin to freedom, right? It is unfreedom. And if there's a moral imperative to constrain relations of power such that we remove instances of unfreedom. That is, that is to say, there is a moral imperative that we create societies in which men and women are free. Right? Now again, that's not a sophisticated argument, but I like these arguments because they're not sophisticated. There's not a billion steps where each step can be queried and checked and whatever. Once you grant me my sort of account of humiliation, those two arguments fall straight out of it. And, you know, like I, I can put it to you this way, whichever side of this you like, <laughs> um, be it utilitarianism or Kantianism, I got you covered, right? And so, that, like, I think that gives me more confidence that this is a sort of correct conclusion, and that I can argue it from multiple different frameworks. And I think the virtue ethicist one is even simpler. Would a good person want to humiliate people? Right? I mean, that, I think that pretty much answers itself. And surely we should design our societies so that it's easier for people to be good, and we don't have institutions, i.e. tyrannical power, that tend to corrupt people, make them worse people, make them bad. I think, anyway, right? I'm not really super into virtue ethics, but it seems like that, too, would have a pretty negative view of humiliation. Let's get on to the final argument, then. Those are my simple ones. I have a slightly more complex one, which is that it's destructive of personhood. So for a while I was thinking, like, it's dehumanizing, it's dehumanizing to humiliate people, um, or that dominating power is bad because it can be used for bad things. I think there's something more direct I want to say than that, which is that for us to be perceived as people, both by others and by ourselves, we need to make status claims that we are not dominated. So, there's there's a there's a really interesting bit in the diary of Frederick Douglass when he's talking about when he was a slave, 
and he, you know, gets physically abused by the overseer or whatever before he eventually stands up and physically confronts him. And he talks about how if you see someone being beaten down and degraded, who has no ability at all to defend themselves or even speak for themselves, you can't respect that person. You can't kind of, I think in his words, see them as a man. He says, you can pity them, but even that won't last for long, right? And think about it, like, when you're on the playground and you see someone else being bullied and victimised and whatever and laughed at by everyone, you know, we'd all like to think we're the person who runs to their defence and punches the bully on the nose, but we all know we didn't, we didn't do that. Not only did we not do that, but come on, be introspectively honest. That person started to feel like a little bit less of a person. They went out of the peer category in your head. They went out of the category of people who warrant a certain respect in how you treat them. Think about the difference, you know, in a workplace when someone gets fired. It's often as if they're a little bit toxic. People sort of shy away from them, you know? We can maybe pity, but people find it really difficult to respect people who are abject, right? And abject, doesn't abject have a degree of moral blameworthiness, like I'm judging that person? If I call someone abject, it, it's kind of a negative thing to say about them. Not their abuser, right? Isn't that interesting how we think about that? And this is this is dark stuff, guys. This is, like, not nice stuff to think about. It shows elements of how we as social creatures relate to each other, which do not speak well of us, you know? Because it's not the abject person's fault. It shouldn't be any judgment on them, but there is a scorn there, right? What sort of person would let themselves be treated that way? The, I mean, that person may not have any choice whatsoever, but who would who would endure that? And the other side of that, who would endure that, clearly implies that we find dominating power absolutely unendurable. We lie to ourselves about it all the time. We pretend that we're not subject to it. We pretend to others and we pretend to ourselves. And that's what humiliation shows us. It is an epistemic lens through which we can see just how inherently evil dominating power is. We can't bear to look at it. It is psychologically painful to have it pointed out that we are subject to it. And it has to be non-consensually pointed out to us. We can't bear to really grapple with the powers that we are subject to. We just, we have to be forced into it. Like I say, we cannot bear to look at it. It's excruciating to see somebody else forced to look at it. It's painful to watch somebody else being humiliated. And so this is, this is my thesis in like formal terms, is that part of personhood is, I mean, Hobbes tells us this, there's two sides to the person, per and sona, persona, right? Like, there's us, there's the ego, and then there's the what we project, how we are seen in the eyes of others, what we've learned from others, our interactions with others. We're nothing more than that, really, and they're not fully separable. We can't just detach who we are from our persona existing in the eyes of others. Now, what I don't mean to say there is other people have to see us as a person for us to be one. What I'm saying is we have to see ourselves as one. We are social creatures. We can't really exist without interaction with others. And for us to see ourselves as people, we have to make status claims to the effect that we are... I mean, what do we call ourselves? Homo sapiens, upright man. That we are not cowed that we are not dominated, we have to make that claim. And making that claim is important and foundational to our personhood. And there's all sorts of ways that you can 
cash that out in, in, in moral terms. After all, in rights theory, isn't the person the bearer of rights? It is the fact that we have personhood that sort of makes us moral entities in the first place. It is the fact that we want our inner selves to conform to and be in harmony with our projections, our status claims that we make to others, that sort of grounds the impetus to be moral in the first place, right? Now, you might say something like this to this argument. Well, okay, I can see how humiliation is sort of deeply harmful to that sense of self, that sense of personhood. But what about if we all just kept pretending? Wouldn't that kind of work? What if we all just sort of agreed not to humiliate and, you know, we'll keep the powers of domination? I think that runs into one. It runs into the same sort of counterpoint I made with the utilitarian one, which is good luck trying in order to effectively make the powerful um, not humiliate, you'd have to put restraints on pl in place which would turn that power into something other than dominating power. So, good luck, good luck trying. But the other is, would we want to? Is, isn't there something a little pernicious about thinking that the way to go in society is to sort of live a lie? Isn't this the sort of heart of Republican theory, that we are against despots of any kind, even benevolent ones. Do we really want to live in a world where we're sort of pretending we have this sort of dignity and protections, but of course we, we don't, but someone else is just too nice to point that out to us? Someone else is too kind to say, you, you know, you realise you are totally at my whim. Is that the world that we want? I mean, it does seem to be a world that a lot of people want. That, 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 you know, they think, oh, Mark Zuckerberg looks like an android and he seems to be a pretty malicious human being. Um, but th their solution, but if they had someone they really liked in that role, you know, like, like, they have no problem, say, with Steve Jobs, who also was a bit of not a brilliant guy, actually, but had much more sort of charisma, and people liked him, and he spoke about individuality and think different. So people liked Steve Jobs. Is that what we want? Or would we rather that there wasn't people with such extreme power over our society in the first place? Right? And so isn't, doesn't this cut to the heart, this idea of, well, could we not, like, just let people make these status claims even if they're false? Well, better still, right, would be a world in which people could make those status claims and they were true, right? A world in which, to put it simply, people were free. Wouldn't that be a better world? I put it to you that it would. Mm -hmm.